India is now the world's most populous country, but in a society that's 80% Hindu, how has Christianity developed and spread there? We explore after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. We do what we can on this podcast to elevate the work of historians. Part of the reason, beyond my own shameless bias as a fellow historian, is because we have an appreciation for specificity and context, and for the importance of understanding places and subjects with rich and complex narratives. Our conversation today exemplifies this value. Few places in the world have histories as dynamic as India. The country, now more than 1.4 billion people, has thousands of years of religious history. Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and many other religions have long traditions in the subcontinent. We're fortunate to have on the podcast an expert on this subject, Chandra Malampali. In the following episode, Upper House's Fellows Program Director and fellow historian Eric Carlson interviews his longtime friend, Chandra. Together, they explore the origins of Christianity in India and how it's developed to get to where we are today. Chandra is the Fletcher Jones Chair of Social Sciences and professor of history at Westmont College. He received his PhD in South Asian history from UW-Madison, and he's the author of four books and many scholarly articles. The basis for today's episode is Chandra's recently released book, South Asia's Christians, Between Hindu and Muslim. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Eric Carlson and Chandra Malampali. Welcome to the podcast, Chandra. It is good to have you with us today. Um, I, um, you and I have known each other for a long time. I was just reminiscing. It's gone, gone back over 25 years, probably right, since we yes. were grad, grad students together here at, at UW-Madison. Um, so I've had the privilege of knowing you for a long time. Uh, and, um, but that's a privilege that our, most of our listeners don't, don't have. <laughs> so I thought we could start with a little bit of introduction, um, uh, about you, tell us a little bit about your background and, and your story. So, um, yeah. So one thing I do know about you, uh, is that you are a, ch a native cheesehead. <laughs> you were, yes, you, yes, you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I am a, uh, part of the South Asian diaspora, but I'm also part of the cheesehead diaspora. <laughs> so I was, I was born <laughs> and raised in the great state of Wisconsin and I have very fond memories of, uh, both Madison and Northern Wisconsin where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And then you, uh, you, you, you stayed, you were in, in Wisconsin for your sort of primary schooling through high school. Uh, and then you did, you, you did your undergrad in the upper Midwest. Right. Um, right. also, right. I, uh, you're and, exactly right. I, I was in Wisconsin through high school. I went to college in Southern Minnesota at Gustavus Adolphus and um, eventually went to grad school, um, went to seminary first at Fuller Seminary, and then ended up at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
where um, most of my family went to UW-Madison to get their graduate degrees, oh, including yeah. both of my parents. My parents immigrated from uh, South India, from Andhra Pradesh in the late 50s, and uh, they ended up in Wisconsin, of all places. <laughs> so they <laughs> went from a very warm place to a pretty cold place. And so um, I, I, I'm a cold weather animal uh, in my bones. I, I, I can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> but I might have turned into a but, California but wimp being here. For- yeah, yeah. You, you, you've survived California, though, it seems like. You're, 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 <laughs> I did. You made it through. Um, yeah. And in, in California, you teach. Uh, you've been at Westmont College for a long time. And you, you teach... Um, history uh, at Westmont, as you alluded, you did your graduate work here um, at Madison, uh, and you focused uh, particularly on Indian and South Asian history, right? Yeah. Uh, and also, there's a strong religious component to what you've studied through uh-huh. the history of Christianity. So, I guess an interesting question as we move towards talking about um, a book that you have coming out soon is what drew you to the study of Indian history, uh, of religion, and of Christianity in India and in South Asia. Um, clearly, yeah. there's some, some yeah. connection to, to your own background here, but yeah. you could say something about that. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. I grew up, as you mentioned, in Wisconsin, and as I entered high school, I became quite interested in learning more about my heritage. My parents took me to India for the first time when I was in high school, and I absolutely lapped it up. I was just so enthralled, and I loved meeting my extended family and uh, traveling about, and it got me passionately interested in Indian culture and society and religion. And so that uh, enthusiasm carried into college. I became a religious studies major. And I was very interested in learning about Eastern religions. And um, eventually, I, um, I, I decided to pursue my doctorate in South Asian history. But it began with uh, a real curiosity about my heritage, which um, isn't necessarily nurtured by the Wisconsin environment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were... Before coming between between college or between, maybe between seminary and coming to um, your graduate program in history, did you you served as a, a journalist for a time also, right? <clears throat> right, right. So during my last year at Fuller Seminary, I think that would have been in uh, 1993, I was approached by a news agency, a now defunct uh, news agency called News Network International, that asked me to go to India and write. A series of articles about um, about religious freedom in India in the wake of the um, demolition of uh, a huge famous mosque in North India and um, mm. a real crisis relating to Indian secularism. Mm. And so mm. they set me up in India for about eight months, and I traveled all over India and in Sri Lanka to Bangladesh and reported on. Um, the state of secular government in South Asia and religious freedom, particularly mm-hmm. as it pertains to Christians. So mm-hmm. Muslims were under duress in India, especially after uh, the demolition of that, that famous mosque in, in North India. But uh, this particular news agency wanted to um, know what the effects of Hindu nationalism were on 
Christian minorities of India, mm. and also of neighboring countries as well. Mm. So I wrote about um, uh, close to 50 articles over the span of wow. uh, a year, a year and a half. Wow. And, and it, obviously very strong connections between that, you said in the nine, in early to mid 90s, and what you're doing right now, too, and in, in, yeah. in this, this book that we're right. uh, here to talk about. So, um, well, you have coming out in uh, very, very shortly, I think in February, with Oxford University Press, your, your most recent book um, titled South Asia's Christians Between Hindu and Muslim. And as I was uh, looking at the book, I was thinking, you know, in some ways, this seems to me like a culmination of so much work that you've done uh, up until this point. Um, uh, you've written a lot on uh, on various aspects of, of Indian history, of uh, religion in India, of uh, Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity. Um, and in this book, you step back and you're telling a, a big story about Christianity in India over the course of what a couple millennia, really, from the be from the beginnings to now, with maybe a special focus on the last uh, five hundred years or so. Um, so I'm interested in the origins of this book. How 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 did you come to write this particular book at this point um, in your career? And um, yeah, so if you could tell us just a little yeah. bit about that. Well, I have a long-standing passion for understanding. The history of Christians in, in India and South Asia as a region. When I was in graduate school, uh, I studied with uh, Bob Frickenberg, who really is the doyen of mm. South mm. Asian uh, Christianity. Uh, he wrote a really re remarkable book about Christianity in India. And when I was at Wisconsin, I served as his project assistant for his uh, project on the study of Christianity in India. That interest um, was sustained through my career as a professor here at Westmont, but I dipped into other things as well, relating to the secular history of modern India, uh, law, legal history. And um, in this particular book, I came back to that original interest in Christians. I was approached by uh, Professor, the late Professor Laman Sane, who mm -hmm. uh, was um, the editor of a series with Oxford University Press on world Christianity. And he asked if I would write the South Asia, a, a South Asia contribution to his Oxford series. And um, I was willing to do that. Uh, the book is pitched to an educated general audience that might know very little about mm. the history of Christians in India. I've tested it out on a number of people, including on uh, one of my tennis partners <laughs> who agreed to uh, read the book and he seemed to handle it okay so i figured but he's a pretty smart guy he's he's a pretty savvy guy on the tennis court too i should say and so if, if anthony could handle it i think that was a pretty good gauge for its uh its relevance to a pretty broad a pretty broad audience <laughs> that's great um, well, assume, I guess, assuming that our audience, uh, me included, are not intimately familiar with, with um, uh, in uh, South Asia, India, and Christianity there, why don't we just start by talking a little, a little about the, the religious landscape of India as a whole? Um, uh, uh, India is a very big country, so maybe we can just start by saying, okay, so 
uh, what, you know, what's the population when we're talking about Christians, what, you know, what percentage of the population are we talking about? Um, right. Yeah. What's the, what's the big land? So the, the broader religious landscape right. here. Right. Well, most people today think of India as a country and it is a country since, uh, 1947, it's been an independent, um, democracy, the largest democracy in the world. But India is really a subcontinent. It's a huge landmass that extends into the Indian Ocean. And because of that huge coastal area that, that reaches into this, this, larger, um, this larger Indian Ocean domain, India has always been influenced by the world. So you, when you study India, mm -hmm. you have to study the world and how there's this remarkable interchange and so um, India is considered to be one of the most diverse regions of the world because of um, its geography, because of its history of interactions with other societies, and because of its own ancient traditions. And so that makes it such a fascinating place to study. According to legend, Jesus' own disciple, Thomas, uh, made a trip to India in the year 52 and was, is believed by the ancient Christian community in India to have made a number of converts in South India. So the origins of Christianity reach back to a um, very early period, uh, even predates the arrival of Muslims in, in India. And by, so, by many uh, centuries, yeah. <laughs> by many centuries. And one of the ironies about the Apostle Thomas is that... Um, we all know Thomas to be uh, as, as doubting Thomas, the one who had mm, to see yeah. the, the, the holes in Jesus's hands and in his side right. before he could believe. Yeah. And Thomas is also the one who asked Jesus, um, show us the way. Uh, how are we to know the way of where you're going? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, mm -hmm. I am the way. And, uh, and so this is the, the great exchange between Jesus and his disciples that that um, you know, many people interpret as 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 the the exclusive claim of of Jesus being the way to God. But ironically, mm -hmm. Thomas goes to to a region of the world that is extraordinarily diverse. People describe India as mm -hmm. a kaleidoscope yeah. of identities, mm -hmm. and it has um, many people that are are Hindu, um, and Hinduism is so many different things, but it is considered to be the dominant religion of India today. 80% uh, of the population is Hindu in, in some form or another. And Muslims are also very prevalent in, in South Asia. There are more Muslims in South Asia than there are in the Middle East. And wow. um, India, the South Asian region, is, is just a huge human footprint in the world, which is why it's such an important place to to take seriously when we're talking about Christians or, or anyone, any, anyone else. But you also have ancient Jewish communities um, in diaspora that settled in um, coastal India. You have um, Zoroastrians, Parsis. You have uh, Sikhs, a Sikh community in uh, North India, Jains. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a really remarkable tapestry, and it makes it a very exciting place to, to study. Yeah. So today, uh, do you ha just to give us a sense, how 
uh, roughly how many, how, what sort of percentage or what, what number of the population um, are Christians today? You said 80% are right. Hindu. Yeah. What's the, what's uh, the Christian? 15% are Muslim. So according to the census of India, uh, Christians amount to less than 3% of the population. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are very committed to counting the numbers of Christians in different parts of the world who would actually come up with a much larger, a considerably larger figure than 3%, uh, maybe closer to 5%, maybe even a little bit more than 5%. And so it's still a small minority of a population of 1.4 billion. But mm -hmm. that small population, when you have such a large population, it's one of the largest Christian populations in the world. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Um, the, 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 just the, the sheer size of these, these numbers. Um, I want to go back to you. You mentioned the, uh, that the story of Christianity in, in India um, goes back to the first century. And we have sources talking about this, this early community that, that grew up um, uh, that's linked to Jesus Apostle Thomas. Lots of, I, lots of interesting questions about that, how we know this, what the sources are for mm -hmm. that and so forth. Um, but maybe if you could fill us in a little more on the Thomas Christians, or they come to be called Syrian Christians eventually, mm -hmm. right? Um, who are, who are, who are these people? Uh, and, and what's, uh, you know, it's, I think a lot of people think of, uh, often think of Christianity as a Western import, something that the Europeans bring as part of the colonial project and so forth. And this really mm. just... <laughs> puts the light of that, I guess it's, it's, it's right. It, so who, who are the, the, the Thomas Christians and, and, um, yeah, what's, what are, what's distinctive about them, about, um, maybe their beliefs, their, their, their culture. Yeah. So the Thomas Christians are an ancient Christian community that lives in a Southern region of India today called Kerala. And as I mentioned earlier, they trace their origins to the uh, missionary endeavors of Jesus's apostle Thomas. Some of that is legendary. We don't know that Thomas made this journey to India and made these converts, but this is how they tell their own story. And we have to take those stories seriously, even as historians that are looking sure, for sure. Um, corroborating evidence for things. Yep. There was a Christian community in South India that traces back to at least the third century. And those third century Christians tell stories about uh, this earlier yep. visit of the Apostle Thomas and another Thomas named Thomas of Cana. But what's mm. important to note about the Thomas Christians is that they weren't simply orphaned in South India. They, they weren't just a community that was left to themselves. They eventually came under the oversight of what's called the Church of the East. Most of us know about the Roman church that was based in Rome, was right. you know, committed to the Pope, but there was a Church of the East that had its own patriarch, its own ecclesiastical institutions, mm -hmm. and they um, mm -hmm. brought the Thomas Christians into their orbit. They were based in a place called Tessaphon, which is in modern-day uh, mm -hmm. Iraq, and they brought the Thomas Christians into their orbit and began to send uh, ecclesiastical personnel to South India to basically um, mentor them and uh, help them to grow in mm. that right, that Syriac right. Mm. 
which they uh-huh. practice to this day. Thomas so Kirchner, just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, just, gonna, just to, to clarify. So we're talking about another branch aside from sort of Western Catholicism, and this is also different uh, from Eastern Orthodoxy? It's related to Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's, it's, it's distinguishable um, because of uh, the geographical terrain and uh, a number of other things, a number of other mm. theological things and ecclesiastical things. But um, the Thomas Christians, along with other so-called Oriental churches, were, were designated as Nestorians, which was a rather pejorative label for, um, that, that designated uh, Christians that did not um, necessarily adhere to the conclusions of the great councils in, in the Roman church, especially about the nature of Christ. But the actual beliefs of Nestorius were so, so close to what, what the Romans were saying about the nature of Christ that it's just a tiny little hair-splitting distinction. And so Fine they, distinctions, yeah. Yeah, they, they inherited um, this pejorative label uh, of Nestorian when, in fact, um, their beliefs are, are pretty much <laughs> in line with uh, what we consider to be Orthodox today. But mm-hmm. these are the, the Oriental churches that went a different way from the Roman church. Yeah. And the, um, the Thomas Armenians, Christian... Thomas Christians, yeah. Sorry, sorry. The, the Thomas Christians or the Syrian Christians, they, they continue to exist in India today alongside other groups. Is that right? They do. They do. And uh, one of the distinctive features of the Thomas Christians is that they claim to come from the highest caste of India. They claim to be uh, originally Brahmin converts. And uh, because of that, they, there is an exclusiveness um, and, and uh, a high pedigree that they claim for themselves and uh, a reluctance to necessarily make converts from people that are from lower castes in India. So Thomas Christians, um, by, by claiming Brahmin heritage, have found a way of blending in with the landscape of, uh, South, uh, of, of South India and claiming this high caste status. And so there is a deep history of, of intermingling with, with Hindus. Um, having a very good rapport with Hindu kings and uh, high caste Hindu communities, mm-hmm. and also having a very good rapport with um, with Muslims in coastal India, because they were all involved in the pepper trade, and mm-hmm. uh, that's how they became very affluent communities. So there is this interreligious dimension to the Thomas Christians that's really quite interesting to look at. Mm. Well. Um... They are eventually joined uh, when the European colonists come first from Portugal, right, and and then and then later from other places. Uh, they're bringing um, with them or in their coattails missionaries, Catholic missionaries first, and and Protestants uh, later. How? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How how does that um, you know how does that change things or what what What's different about the, um, maybe thinking first about the Catholic missionaries that come in starting, what, in the late 15th century uh, into the 16th and, and going forward. What, how is the form of, of um, Christianity that they bring different from what's there? And what sort of, how, how would you characterize the encounters that they, they yeah. have uh, with, with both, both the existing Christian communities and with the um, uh, religious majority? 
So the arrival of the Portuguese toward the end of the 15th century um, brought an end to this um, somewhat autonomous experience of the Thomas Christians. They were pretty, a very established community that had um, a very vibrant trade, um, very affluent, um, good relations with their other religions in, in that region. When the Portuguese come, they want to um, take over um, the coastal area, and they want to lay claim to the trade in peppers and pearl fishing and a number of other things. And initially, they see the Thomas Christians as their co-religionists. So there's this hope that, you know, they found an ally in the East Mm, that could actually assist them in... um, uh, in their geopolitical confrontation with Muslims. So they thought the Syrian Christians, well, these folks also know how to fight. They, 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 they have their own warriors. And so if we could team up with them, maybe we could take on the Muslims together. That relationship, that initial hope um, goes south pretty quickly when the Portuguese and the missionaries that follow them try to Latinize the Thomas Christians and try to bring them under the authority of the Pope and try to introduce certain kinds of ecclesiastical reforms. And there's quite a bit of pushback on the part of the um, Thomas Christians who were committed to the Syriac rite and um, their old ways of doing things, their old clerical authority. So it was not a very um, happy experience. There's mm-hmm. a branch of the Thomas Christians that did agree to, um, to come under the oversight of Rome, but there were other Thomas Christians that um, remained um, true to their their, their Syriac uh, distinctive Oriental heritage. Mm-hmm. So there were there became many different splinters, and that um, harmonious relationship between the Thomas Christians and other religions was really quite quite poisoned by the arrival of the Portuguese. There's mm. much more antipathy between Christians and Muslims after the arrival of the Portuguese. Um, they're, they're, the, the Muslims become more radicalized because the Portuguese are in their face so much. Uh, and there are a number of rebellions by Muslims. These we call them mapulas. And so, um, yeah, that whole era of interreligious uh, coexistence um, is, it, it evaporates with the arrival of, mm. of the Portuguese. And what you have is a more aggressive kind of Christendom that's introduced into South India. And, and you know, um, I know debates that happen in the same period in the New World, um, that there's often, there's some tension that's seen between right. missionaries on the one hand, and then so the, the you know, mm-hmm. the conquistadores, or the leaders of the, of the, uh, the colonial project, um, how, in India, are these things separated much? Are they uh, are, are both in terms of the minds of the missionaries themselves and also in the perceptions of, of um, Indians? Or um, is there daylight between the missionary project and the, and the rest in uh, other aspects of the colonial project? Yeah, or uh, yeah, are they pretty much question. one of the same? I think they're much more um, in alignment in the New World that... Um, the various missionaries, the Franciscans and the Jesuits and a number of other orders came to um, New Spain and established missions. And these missions enjoyed the backing of, uh, of the Spanish Empire 
uh, and they carved out domains for themselves to Christianize the indigenous populations. Um, and so it was very much a part of a colonial project. In India, that initially is the case that um, the Jesuit orders that came to India enjoyed the royal patronage. They were part of the padroado that uh, enjoyed the backing of the Portuguese crown and the Pope to establish um, churches in, in South India. There comes a point where the Jesuits um, begin to become somewhat uncomfortable with that imperial relationship and the mm. agendas of the Jesuits and the agendas of the Portuguese crown become more and more in tension with each other. And the approach of Jesuits to indigenous culture becomes more, uh, more magnanimous, more adaptive, more contextual. And they're pushing back on the desire, this Latinizing tendency of the Portuguese crown. And that creates uh, more of a rift between the agenda of missionaries and the agenda of these imperial rulers mm. that happens in India. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, and there are some big names within the history of, of Catholic and Jesuit missions who are associated with the mission in India, including people like Francis Xavier, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you were studying this and, and writing about this, were there any sort of standout um, interesting stories or, or individuals who captured your attention or who, who end up figuring prominently in the story that you're um, telling in the book? Well, I find the Jesuits to be absolutely fascinating characters. They are remarkable globetrotters, and they are so deeply committed to, to learning about the societies that, um, that they're, that they're preaching the gospel to. And so they are the forerunners of producing so much knowledge about India. Mm -hmm. yep. And they are almost like the first contacts that Europeans have with a very big part of India. It mm. comes through the agency of the Jesuits and their institutions and their practices. And so um, Robert de Nobili was famous for developing this, this um, missionary principle of accommodation that uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of like the Apostle Paul saying, I'll become all things to all people in order that I might win the many. So Robert de Nobili um, set out to try to take on the persona of a high caste Hindu it's in terms of his dress, in terms of his posture, in terms of his etiquette. And he even claimed that he was a Brahmin from, uh, from Rome, mm. who was from this high lineage, so that he could gain a captive audience with Indians. And um, Francis Xavier, whom you mentioned, um, you know, has experiences in, uh, in Japan and East Asia, as well as South Asia. He's known to have um, made thousands and thousands of converts from fishermen communities of South India. Um, so you have so many different uh, kinds of Jesuits that are experimenting with culture as they ask the question, how do we make the gospel available to this region of the world? This is the first time that Europeans are coming to terms with the deep diversity of humankind, coming face to face with Amer Indians in, in the Americas and coming face to face with religions that they've never encountered before 
in um, in India, and they're having to take the lessons that they learned in the Mediterranean, um, in this original principle of Christianity, and apply them to a much larger canvas um, that involves forms of religion that they've never encountered before, Buddhism, Hinduism, established traditions that have this ancient lineage. And so this is, this is what makes the project of these early Jesuits so, so exciting to study. Yeah. And, and not without controversy back in Europe yeah. or right. probably also uh, in, in the places that they go to. Um, yeah. So uh, you, you say that they, they do, a, they, they go a long way towards trying to enculturate the gospel, trying to accommodate to sort of maybe cultural norms, cultural forms. How, how successful um, I don't know how you would, might measure that, but but how you know um, were they able to gain um, a lot of converts, and what what sort of form of um, Catholicism gets established um, early on in the in the sort of fifteenth, sixteenth centuries? Pretty much a mixed bag, uh, and it also depends on how we measure success. Uh, if you measure success in terms of numbers of converts, I would say that somebody like Robert de Nobili uh, is not terribly successful from that number standpoint. Um, from the standpoint of developing um, deep relations with Indian society, I think uh, Jesuits like de Nobili and Beshi and uh, a number of others are really quite remarkable in the ex- the extent of their commitment to learning about the other and mm-hmm. uh, the, to, to learn local languages, to accumulate knowledge, to study ancient texts. Um, and that is one of their the, the, the legacies that the Jesuits really left behind mm-hmm. in India. Jesuits were not always committed to being tolerant and, accommodate, and, and accommodating. They could be quite confrontational. And yeah. um, a good example of that was the Jesuit mission, mission to um, the court of the Mughal emperor, Akbar. Um, Akbar is just one of the most ex- extraordinary, interesting people to study in the history of the world. Because Let me just ask you first. Some, yeah. So just to, just to define, uh, he said he's a Mughal emperor. Uh, um, emperor. The Mughals were who? So the Mughals were a um, a group of Turco-Mongol rulers that 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 ruled India for hundreds of years, all the way to 1857. Uh, India was under the rule, in some shape or form, by the Mughals, and um, one of the most famous Mughal rulers was this man named Akbar, who uh, presided over this diverse land called India that had so many religions, had flora and fauna that his, people of his lineage had never encountered before. And Akbar discovered very early on, like his predecessors, um, he was the third Mughal emperor, that you could not rule India by imposing one religion on the whole uh, subcontinent. You had to have an open and capacious approach to Indian diversity. 
So Akbar um, developed a poli developed policies that rested very lightly on the Indian people, and did not was not accompanied by a strong Islamizing agenda. On the contrary, many Muslims in India looked at Akbar and thought that he was a heretic because he was so open mm. to um, learning about other religions and was so quick to recognize the virtues of other religions. And he was doing this while Europeans were, were engaged in their wars of religion. Um, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre in, in France happens yeah. you know, yeah. around the time of Akbar's reign and uh, the Thirty Years' War and um, the Reconquista in Spain, the, the, the desire to reconquer Spain for Catholicism. All of this is happening in Europe while Akbar is inviting Jesuits to his court to have long discussions about Christian theology with them. Yeah. And he's doing this with uh, many other uh, adherents of many other religions as well. So this is what makes him um, such an interesting person to study. The second chapter of my book deals with Jesuit encounters and interactions with the with the Emperor Akbar. Mm -hmm. So, Chandra, you were you were mentioning Akbar here, and um, so he had people. He had um, Jesuits come to his court, right? And, right. Right. And to explain, he he was just interested in what they had to say, or what was yeah. what, what what kind of an agenda do you think he, he was um, working with, or that was animating him? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great example of how um, two sides of an encounter can approach that encounter for totally different reasons and motivations. The Jesuits, there were actually as many as three different missions of Jesuits to Akbar's court, which says something. It means that the guy could not get enough of the Jesuits. There was something about <laughs> them that he really liked. Yeah. And uh, Akbar was illiterate, but nevertheless had a voracious appetite for learning. He inherited his father Humayun's massive library that had classical texts in Greek and Sanskrit and Arabic, Persian. Uh, and so he, he wanted to learn. He wanted to be instructed. And he was intrigued about um, the Jesuits' faith. Some scholars think that Akbar was being a little tricky, that he was trying to engage in a form of espionage by having these Jesuits come over to his palace regularly. And there might be some, some truth to that, but they did talk about theology in some length. Jes uh, Akbar had his own son um, be taught by the Jesuits, and, and he was taught about Christian theology as well. The difference between Akbar and the Jesuits is that Akbar was interested in having a great conversation. <laughs> and learning and listening and talking. He could, he could go on and on. But he did this with, with adherents of other religions as well. The Jesuits mistakenly believed that Akbar's openness to talking with them meant that he was on the verge of becoming a Christian. And so they waited with great anticipation for Akbar mm. to make the decision to be baptized because they believed that by baptizing the emperor, you could do the Constantine thing. You could, you could open the whole domain up to Christianity. Um, but Akbar, um, some people think um, Akbar was kind of playing them. <laughs> he was kind of teasing their, their passion for evangelism by engaging in these conversations. But Akbar was developing his own universal religion at the same time. Mm. 
is mm. a religion of God, mm. is Din Ihalahi. And so um, this uh, meant that Akbar um, believed that all religions were, were true, all religions were legitimate, and um, all religions also were imperfect. And the other thing that Akbar was, was influenced by was this belief in a messianic um, character that um, would, would be introduced into the history of Islam. And there are scholars who believe that Akbar came to think of himself as the millennial messiah, um, who was going to, in some sense, replace um, the earlier forms of Islam that had been in place up to that point, and that Akbar was this new millennial messiah. And so um, he probably was thinking he could add credibility and prestige to his new status by having all of these representatives of different religions in his court. Um, and it, it would actually contribute to his universal religion. And so mm. he was accommodating Jesuits into his universalistic framework where Jesuits were trying to accommodate Akbar into their <laughs> wow. missiological yeah. project. So it made yeah. for a, a great deal of frustration um, on the part of the Jesuits. Makes me, you know, I do, uh, I work on European history in the same period, and it makes me interested actually in the question of um, how Akbar was received in Europe at the time, what people at the time were saying. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but there, mm -hmm. there probably is a fascinating um, source base for that as you get into the 18th century. I can see yeah, how this could there, be, there was be appealing. some correspondence between him and Elizabeth Tudor, who mm -hmm. um, reportedly wrote a letter to him saying, "News of your humanity has reached these distant, distant shores." <laughs> oh wow! And yeah. uh, there's a, a documentary called The Story of India, narrated by Michael Wood, where he, he, he talks about that letter mm -hmm. uh, as a way of showing that uh, Akbar had ushered in the age of reason in India well before um, the Europeans had latched onto it um, yeah. wow. in, in their neck of the woods. <laughs> well, speaking of the age of reason, I want to just move forward a little yeah. bit. Um, uh, Catholics are eventually joined by Protestants as well, and, and Protestants from Germany of all places, um, yeah. and, uh, and then uh, from, from, um, the, from Britain and, and other places. Um, how, how different are they? How different is the approach yeah. that you find among these, these missionary pietists uh, right. and, and others um, from that of the, um, the, their Catholic predecessors? Well, Protestants in Europe, as, as many people know, received their identity, developed their identity by distinguishing themselves from Catholics to one extent or another. Of course, there were some who the distinction is very, very slim. Anglo-Catholics um, retained much of what was in Catholicism, but the, the rift became much more pronounced with Calvinists and Lutheran, Lutherans. And so um, this, um, this tendency to say that we are not Catholic uh, is introduced into the mission field. So the first Protestant missionary to India is Bartholomeus Ziegenbog, mm -hmm. who reaches India in right around 1706. And what's interesting about Ziegenbog is that his missionary approach was very similar to the Jesuits, huh. but he 
would probably be the first to differentiate himself from Catholicism, being a German and being a pietist himself, someone committed to a certain kind of devotionalism that's authentic, that's from the heart, as opposed to external, you know, rituals. And um, but Ziegenbog um, had an approach to culture that was very similar to the Jesuits. He was deeply committed to learning Tamil. He he was only in India for about oh gosh I don't remember how many years maybe a decade nine to fourteen years before he passed away but during that time he produced um, so many so many mm. important works on the study of Hinduism and he recorded all of his dialogues with Muslims and Hindus um, and what was interesting about Ziegenbog is that. He had a very confrontational style dealing with Muslims, especially, but also Hindus. He, he, he challenged the errors of their, their beliefs, that what he considered to be the errors of their sacred texts. But what was interesting about Ziegenbog is that ultimately he was really loved by Indians. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and because Indians did not perceive him to be an imperialist or a racist. Uh, he, Interesting. There was a humility about him and a um, a deep empathy and a deep appreciation for the Tamil people, their language, and their beliefs. Mm. They mm. looked at him and they thought, here is someone who was so interested in us that he learned this much about us. He learned more about our religion than we know about it ourselves. And so... Um, not long ago, sometime in uh, 2006, there was a commemoration of Ziegenbog in Tamil Nadu, the 300-year anniversary of Ziegenbog's arrival in the set. And what was striking about that event was that it was there were participants of all religions that were celebrating the legacy of Ziegenbog. And so there was this kind of ownership of this this Christian man that came to India to propagate the gospel, but also developed such a deep love for um, Indian people, uh, Tamil, Tamil people. Chandra, so India is a society that in many ways is defined by caste and the caste system. And I'm wondering about how, uh, how Christianity relates to caste in India. Wow. Um, are there, are there, well, sort of, are there more Christians among certain castes than others? And, um, maybe you could just start by, by just explaining the system a little bit right. and then yeah. how that might play out, um, yeah. in, in religious it, terms. Well, there are two ways of explaining to relatively uninformed people what caste is. And one of them is to present caste as something that is common to all of humankind, social distinctions that tend to perpetuate themselves generationally, um, skill sets that are passed on from parents to their children so that their children are groomed in the same trade as their parents and carry on that tradition, that knowledge that is familial. And um, the differentiation of society into different vocations, priests, warriors, merchants, and service providers. And that is um, cast in its, in its generic form. That, and you see evidence of those types of distinctions all over the world. 
The other way of talking about caste is to say that what you find in India is exotic and very different from anything you see in Europe. The social class distinctions of Europe, the social class distinctions in um, Amerindian society, African society, and that India is some, there's something strange and different and exotic about India and its caste distinctions. And so I like to take some sort of a middle path <laughs> between um, that universalistic uh, approach and that um, exotic orientalist, orientalizing approach and say, yeah, there, there is something um, unique about um, this social order in India. And part of it is it's the fact that it has endured, um, it, it, it has hung around through the centuries, and that um, there is something to marrying one's own kind, dining with one's own kind, habits of purity that accompany these distinctions that, and habits of belief that accompany these distinctions that have given it a kind of durability um, over time. The people that became Christian in largest numbers in India were not people from the highest caste, that, uh, the Brahmins. Those were the people that people like Robert de Nobili wanted to make Christian. And if you recall, these were the people that, uh, according to legend, the Apostle Thomas converted to Christianity, converted a group of Brahmins, according to legend. Mm. Probably is factually not true. <laughs> Uh-huh. But, but the, uh, the idea here is that if yeah. you convert the Brahmins, then the rest of society yeah. will follow. There's this trickle down effect. And that was the yeah. education. That was the uh, mission uh, strategy of, of, of certain Catholic orders. And it was also the mission strategy of some of the early Protestant uh, missionaries from England, uh, from Britain, from Scotland. Mm-hmm. They targeted mm-hmm. the upper the upper castes, believing that they would wield influence that would that would contribute to the, the dissemination of the gospel in India. But the people that were most responsive to Christianity were not even the lower caste. They were people, the people that were most responsive to Christianity were people that didn't belong to any of the castes of India. <laughs> they were the mm. lowest of the lowest of the low. Uh, they were called untouchable during the colonial period because of their heredi- hereditary occupations that made them impure or mm-hmm. unclean. So mm-hmm. they were people that were leather workers and came into contact with um, animal corpses and used their hides for um, producing leather and uh, consumed the carrion, um, which was a taboo for, for Hindus. Um, they were people that worked at crematoriums, coming into contact with corpses, which again, it w- were polluting uh, to be, if you were, if you were not, um, mandated to be in touch with corpses. You could be polluted by a, by a dead body. They were people that were sanitation workers. Um, they cleaned dirt, excrement from public places. And um, they were also agricultural laborers. And they were mistreated. They were, they were, mm. uh, they were part of a, a kind of a, a slave system where they were subject to forced labor. And so these were the people that responded in unexpectedly uh, overwhelming ways to the presentation of Christianity uh, in ways that surprised and overwhelmed missionaries themselves. What's in your um, research, what have you found? What, what is it about um, 
what about Christianity appealed especially to, uh, you call them untouchables, Dalits mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. another term that's used often, right? Yeah. Um, that, that is the term that's used today is Dalits. Dalits, yeah. yeah. It literally means broken or oppressed. Oppression. Yeah, yeah. So what was it about Christianity that you think especially appealed to Dalits in large numbers, more yeah. so than, than um, other groups? Well, I think uh, people from untouchable communities were looking for relief from the stigma and experience of untouchability from whatever source they could find it. And sometimes they found it by befriending outsiders who mm -hmm. did not carry uh, the prejudice that upper caste did toward them. So many untouchables developed a close affinity with the Portuguese when they came to India. And something similar happened when European missionaries from uh, a later period came to India, that um, the untouchables were looking for dignity, they were looking for um, humanity, self-respect, and a way of, of um, having a more dignified existence in the world. And they found that in Christianity um, and in their association with missionaries. This gets into all kinds of debates in India about mm. whether untouchables had utilitarian reasons for becoming Christian, that they were becoming Christian only for the humanitarian humanitarian resources that were meted out to them by missionaries. But um, this is this becomes a rather circular argument because um, uh, missionaries themselves were worried about this. <laughs> are they only mm -hmm. coming? Mm -hmm. Are they only asking for baptism because they want food? And that's where you get the um, the phrase "rice Christians." These were Christian people that were becoming yeah. Christian to actually to have rice. Um, but there there is a way that 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 is turned on its head, uh, and that is that um, the gospel does come to the poorest of the poor in the form of rice. <laughs> In the form of yeah. um, in the form yeah. of aid, in the form of very yeah. very basic amenities, and uh, it's really unrealistic to try to produce a theolo theologically informed Christian subject out of someone who is so profoundly degraded by the social mm. systems yeah. that, they, that they work yeah. in. And so this is how the conversation goes. Um, missionaries who were overseeing, who who were in India during these mass conversions of Dalits uh, were absolutely surprised and overwhelmed. They were understaffed to even conduct these baptisms. You have this American Baptist named John Clough, who's, who's baptizing thousands of Christians in, in, in the span of weeks and does not have the staffing to um, even find out if they know the first things about Christianity. Um, and you have... Um, uh, missionaries of the London Mission Society in the Punjab, in North India, who are looking at these mass conversions of sanitation workers called churas. Mm -hmm. They were also agricultural mm -hmm. laborers who became Christian. And they did not have enough um, Indian catechists to actually um, teach them the basic tenets of Christianity. Most of these mass movements were initiated by Indians. They were initiated by the Dalits themselves, who actively sought the um, 
the ability to be baptized, the ability to learn about Christianity, and of course, the available resources of missionaries. They sought Mm -hmm. refuge from untouchability, the curse of untouchability beneath the umbrella of missions. Mm-hmm. And so some Dalits were able to upgrade their status to some extent by becoming Christian and having access to schools, having access to medical medical services. And so this all gets folded into the Rice Christian narrative uh, that is deployed by, by mm-hmm. critics of the missionary enterprise in India. And it's something that really needs to be unpacked a bit more. Um, in, in, in the way we look at this particular aspect of Indian Christianity. Hmm. The, the fact that the, a large number of Christians in India are Dalits um, makes me wonder about their contribution to Christianity in India. Like, to, what, what's, what has been one or two of the main ways that this large Dalit presence among the Christian communities in India has, has shaped or contributed to yeah. both Christianity or to Indian society more broadly? Well, unfortunately, um, despite having <laughs> being the majority of, of, of Christians in India are, are, are either Dalit or tribal, another class of people that fell outside of the caste system, uh, tribal communities of India also became Christian in groups in large numbers. But despite being the majority, um, they don't represent the most, uh, the, the power structure of Indian churches or the, um, they aren't the people that are uh, producing um, reflections on what it means to be Indian and Christian. And that is changing because increasingly Dalits are producing their own theologies, their own ways of appropriating Jesus Christ um, in, their circ- in their life circumstances. And some of the important tropes of Dalit Christian theology relate to looking at Jesus as someone who experienced what they experience mm. in their life, mm. Mm. of being crushed, humiliated, crucified, and mistreated by the religious establishment of his day. And so um, in Dalit Christian theology, Jesus is the prototype of all Dalits because of the humiliation that he suffered. And what's really interesting is that in Western society, in Western Christianity, we believe that Jesus died for us or died in our place and suffered on our behalf but for Dalits, Jesus suffered like us. He is mm. one with us. Mm. And that is the basis of that um, theological production. And most Dalit theology um, is simply an opportunity to share their experiences of caste oppression in an open way. And what they experience in village life, what they experience at the hands of upper castes. and Sadly, these stories remain abundant to this very day. Mm. Um, this this, this um, history of mistreatment yeah. has carried forward yeah. into yeah. modernity. So, Chandra, one of the uh, fastest growing forms of Christianity worldwide today, if probably the fastest growing uh, form of Christianity, is Pentecostalism, and particularly in the global South. 
um, in in Africa and um, parts of uh, South America and and elsewhere. And that seems to be a trend also in uh, in India today. How how do you think we might explain uh, the appeal the the uh, the fast growth of Pentecostalism mm -hmm. in India and and what kind of um, what kind of response has that gotten from the rest of Indian society? Yeah, I don't know about the whole of Indian society, but in certain quarters of Indian society have um, reacted uh, unfavorably um, to Pentecostal growth. But first we should try to understand what is appealing about Pentecostalism to uh, Indians of all social classes, but particularly Dalits. Uh, Pentecostals um, draw people to their churches by creating a comparatively relaxed caste environment. Caste distinctions do not factor prominently in Pentecostal spaces because of a strong emphasis on the experience of the Holy Spirit. And so anybody um, can experience the Holy Spirit in a Pentecostal setting. Mm -hmm. And it is not a function of your education or your caste. <laughs> and so you can be a woman, you can be a Dalit, you can be a high caste person, a low caste person, and you can experience the gift of tongues. You can experience prophetic um, words that speak to your life. And so I would like to make the case that um, Pentecostals offer affective goods to Indians, feelings, emotions, and spaces mm. where they are made contact with in ways that mainline traditions and even high church traditions like the Thomas Christians perhaps have not succeeded at making contact with ordinary Indians. So it's not simply mm. Pentecostals, but it's Pentecostals and Charismatics both, that they um, are able to present a much more democratic form of, of Christianity, where there is this remarkable participation of, of the laity in the life of the ministry and in the direct experience of, of Christ. And so you accompany that with, um, with very, very emotive music, with um, mm -hmm. expressive forms of worship, with dancing and shouting, deliverance from evil spirits. This is something that is very important in um, village life in India, is the belief that demons can create illnesses, they can affect personalities, they can divide families, and that people do need deliverance from oppressive evil spirits. This is something that Pentecostals actually share in common with village Hinduism. They share a common mm. belief in demonology. And so Pentecostals aren't coming out to attack Hinduism. They actually agree with a lot of Hinduism. Yes, these demons are real. <laughs> That's why we need Jesus to deliver us from them. And so um, <clears throat> this, this explains one aspect of Pentecostal appeal is this effective affective community that they they cultivate in their in their worship and their practices yeah and yeah. they uh there is a, a, new, a younger scholar named chakali chandrasekhar who says that um certain christian ministries are successful at making the untouchable touchable 
in a quite a literal way through the giving of hugs, through the laying on of hands, through the anointing with oil. Anybody Mm. gets that. And there's just no fussing around here when God means business. And this is very appealing to to Pentecostals. And so, um, but there's another side to Pentecostalism that explains its worldwide growth and movement, and that is its flamboyance and its grandiosity, the megachurch urban Mm. uh, manifestations of Pentecostalism, the highly emotive preaching, uh, the affluence, the the global, the way it taps into global networks of wealth and corporatism and broadcasting. There are at least three or four major 24-7 Christian broadcasting networks in India. Some of them are owned and operated by American uh, charismatic groups um, or uh, groups coming from Australia or or England. So this, that's fascinating, Chandra. I um, I thought we could end by um, I just ask you about the response uh, to uh, to the high profile and the rapid growth of Pentecostalism in India. I know in your book you talk about um, about religious violence or violence mm-hmm. um, that has um, that, that's been a phenomenon recently. Um, yeah. What what has what kind of response has has Pentecostalism elicited? Yeah. So India today is um, strongly influenced by a Hindu nationalist movement, um, coalition of organizations that are committed to making India an officially Hindu nation. And in the process, um, non-Hindu groups are portrayed as essentially foreigners. And that would be Muslims primarily, but also Christians. And so under um, in Narendra Modi's India, the current prime minister of India, who belongs to this Hindu nationalist party, uh, Muslims and Christians find themselves increasingly vulnerable to being portrayed as non-Indians and being portrayed as uh, a threat to um, the, the development of this Hindu nation, the establishment of this Hindu nation. And so Muslims have been attacked. They've been subject to lynchings and um, physical attacks in various parts of India. But more than ever before, Christians have been attacked physically by Hindu vigilante groups who are opposed to Christian conversion. And among the Christians that have been attacked, no group that has been attacked with greater frequency than Pentecostals. And so they are on the receiving end of considerable violence, not simply directed against their church structures, but also their persons who have pastors being beaten up, and um, that these are very, very well documented, very accurately documented, as many as 500 incidents in this past year of of, of pastors being uh, attacked, churches being ransacked. And so it's um, raising some very important questions about the state of religious freedom in India, in a Hinduizing India. And these are very live debates that we should all be paying attention to. Right, right. Um, We actually uh, have the privilege here at Upper House that we're actually going to get to hear Chandra come uh, to uh, Upper House later uh, this semester in March to talk about this very topic, about um, Pentecostalism and religious violence uh, in India today. And um, we we very much look forward to hosting you here then, Chandra. Chandra will be in town and also 
uh, presenting at the uh, at the UW Madison Center for for South Asia. So we look forward to those events. Which uh, stay tuned for details on that. Um, Chandra, it's been great talking with you today. Um, we are excited for the appearance of your book very shortly. Um, again, um, uh, South Asia's Christians um, between Hindu and Muslim, which will be published by Oxford University Press very shortly. Thanks so much for being with us, Chandra, today. It's been great. wonderful. Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks for a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.